Hi, I'm Carl Payton, pastor of Transformation Church RVA. I wanted to take a moment and thank you for checking out this sermon. I also wanted to bring to your attention something that is close to our hearts here. While our team has prayed that this message would stir within you a desire to know more about Jesus and be more like Him, our desire is that it would only be supplemental to your faith journey and not replace the church and faith community God has called you to be a part of locally. With that said, engage with us over the next 30 to 40 minutes as we dig into the Word of God proclaimed. If you'll turn in your Bibles, turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Now, if, if you grew up in church... You're thinking, oh man, he's about to preach about giving. I'm not preaching about giving today. Um, so you can put your wallet away. We've already done offering, not taking up any more offerings. But Malachi was a prophet, and he had some things to say about things that were to come. That's what a prophet does. You know what a prophet does? A prophet takes the word of the Lord and proclaims what is coming. And so Malachi was a prophet. And we're going to be in chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3. As you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, there's a, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. You can grab that. The page number's on there. You can turn there with us. How many of you have ever watched the show Gold Rush? Gold Rush. Any Gold Rush fans? You just love Gold Rush. No, not many. Well, they were on for a little while. I love watching Gold Rush, and I, I'll tell you why I like watching Gold Rush. Now, how, hold on. What are y'all watching? <laughs> Not that Gold Rush is the only thing on TV. Uh, some of y'all like moonshiners. Oh, <laughs> uh, you won't admit to that. Okay, no, that's fine. Um, Gold Rush is very similar to some extent, and this is why I love Gold Rush, because two reasons. One, the roughneck men that are on Gold Rush. I mean, these are rough-looking fellas. Not as rough as moonshiners, but they're still rough-looking. And um, they, they kind of remind me of my dad. My dad was a, a tractor and trailer driver. Rough hands. You ever shake hands with a guy and you can just tell, like, he, he's, he just works hard. These, these are those types of roughneck um, just honest, hardworking people. So it reminds me a lot of my, my dad's side of the family. My grandpa, he was a hardworking fellow. Always, when he shook his hand, you could tell that life, you know, he had worked hard for the things that he, he had because of the rough texture of his hands. The other reason I like Gold Rush is because you'll watch the show. And if you haven't watched the show, Gold Rush is a show where they go out and they try and find gold in a rush. Not reinventing the wheel here, folks. We're just trying to find gold. And these guys, they go after this gold, and look, they're sifting through rivers and dirt. And look, they'll, when they find gold, they pull this big chunk of mud up out of the ground, and they lose their minds. They're like, look at this. We made it. We're, we're rich. We're, we made it big now. And I'm like, bro, I've, I can dig that up in my backyard. What, what are you staring at? 
Things covered in mud and dirt. It, it doesn't come out looking like your ring. I don't know if you knew this, um, but it doesn't come out looking like your gold rings. It, it comes out covered in mud with impurities and all types of junk. Just like something you could probably dig up in your backyard. But they, I love their response because it, it's, it's almost like they're looking at this piece of junk. But they, but they see something in it. That causes them to react. It causes them to be joyful. Um, it's, it's nothing impressive. And so as I watched Gold Rush, I, I had the thought the other day that this is very similar to how Christ saw you when he saved you. Because you understand the, the Bible tells us that he while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. So while you were at your very worst, he didn't die for a future version of you. He died for you at your very worst. And he looked at you and said, there's something here. There's something to be refined. And so the Bible talks very often about Christ being a refining fire. Everybody say refining. God is a refining fire. So as we walk through this holiday season, I need you to understand that Christ didn't just come to save and redeem your soul, but he came to refine you to what God had created you to be. Because you today... No matter what form you are in this morning, God created you in his image. No matter what anyone has told you, no matter what you believe about yourself, God created you in his image with value. And he came to redeem you unto himself, to bring you back to him. That's why he came. And so the holidays can be rough in general, and life can be rough in general. Um, but I need you to, to not just see the manger. I don't need you to just see that he came for the cross. He came to work things out in you. And so I want to talk today about the refining love of God. Um, and I just have one point. That's it. One point today. Give me a number one. I just, I just have one. Um, and that point is this. God is at work in the mess. God is at work in the mess. Now, some of you might say or think this morning that that means the sermon will be shorter. I can't guarantee that. Um, but I can guarantee you that is my only point. God is at work in the best. And so read with me Malachi chapter 3. And we are going to start in verse 1. Look, I am sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Let me stop right there and just tell you, this is talking about Jesus Christ. 
This is Malachi saying, hey, listen, you know this hope you've been hoping? You know this word you've been told your whole life? You, you know this thing you've been looking forward to? He's coming. He's coming. And, and, and so he's already here prophesying about what's to come. And then it kind of takes a weird turn here in verse 2. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire. Isn't this weird? It's weird that Malachi would go from declaring that all your hopes and dreams are about to come true and then turn right around and say, but who can take it? Who's going to be able to make it endure what's about to come? Continuing in verse 2. For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal. Or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Then once more... The Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem as he did in the past. At that time, I will put you on trial. Everybody say trial. I am eager to witness against all sorcerers and adulterers and liars. I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, and who deprive foreigners living among you of justice. For these people do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Last verse. I am the Lord and I do not change. If you underline in your Bible, I, I, I want you to take your highlighter, I want you to take your pen, and I want you to underline that. I am the Lord and I do not change. That is why... Uh, you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. So let me give you a little background on what's going on. So the people of Israel, the people of God, have been enslaved. They've been enslaved for years and years and years, and then all of a sudden they're freed from slavery. They're freed from slavery. They're taken back to the city. You remember we studied through Nehemiah? Right, And they rebuilt the walls. They rebuilt Jerusalem. And so at this point that Malachi is prophesying, they're back in their homes. They're out of slavery. They're back worshiping. And they're back doing sacrifices again. And what Malachi accuses them of is being half-hearted. This is Malachi's whole story. If you read this whole book, what you will find is Malachi looks at them and they've become comfortable and now half-hearted in their offerings. Half-hearted in what they give to God. And dare I say this morning that today may be a self-check to see if you've become half-hearted in your service to God. In your walk with God, have you become half-hearted? Now, when we talk about the refining love of God, 
And especially with Hallmark season here, the Hallmark Channel is in full force. And love is just depicted in such a great way. Man, it feels good, right? You know the kind of love. This is how love is depicted. Like if your marriage, if you get married, you're going to have this kind of love, this, this pretty, just all, just warm Love. And this is the love we like talking about. But how many of you, okay, how many of you know love isn't pretty? That's the first point here. Love is not just pretty. Love is not just pretty. And there's a reason I say that because, and, and we talk about this in marriage counseling a lot, because if you have these expectations that love is supposed to look a certain way, when love doesn't look that way, you think you don't have love anymore. So, in correlation to what Malachi is talking about here, when we talk about the refining love of God, many times when we talk about God and his love, we want to talk about how he blesses us and how he saved us and, and, and how pretty this whole process looks, but we never want to talk about the fact that God wants to war against the sinfulness in your life. And that is just as much a reflection of his love as him dying on the cross. Because he wants the very best for you. You realize that, right? I don't know if you've, you've come here today and you think God's out to rob you of something. But today I'm telling you, love is not just pretty. And that God will send joy and sorrow to mold and shape us. Now how do you know that? Because God is in the business of showing you how weak you are and how strong he is. Because if you think you can do it on your own, you will leave God off to the side. And the unfortunate circumstances we live in today, we want God when we come to him, we want him to give us a life that requires us not to be dependent on him. Wouldn't you rather have that? Wouldn't you rather have a life that you don't have to be dependent? Maybe I'm talking about a bunch of just, maybe I'm in the wrong room. That's probably it. Men, most of us in this room would rather have a God that gives us everything we want so we don't have to depend on him for anything. And then all of a sudden when life comes crashing in and we have to depend on him for something, we say, oh, God must not love us anymore. And that's the sad but um, terrible fact is, is that's true for many of us this morning. Is that you judge God on a love that... Um, while true, he does love you, and that's great. And he does want the very best for you, and he wants good things. What, what does Jeremiah say? Um, uh, God has plans to prosper you, not harm you, to give you hope in the future, right? I mean, I mean, God wants these things for you. But he also wants to work out some things for you. Love is after our good fullness. So listen. Would we consider it love if I just let 
Macy, Macy has been helping me bake around the house, and so would it be love if I just, I just let her do whatever she wants, give it to her whenever she wants it, let her run out in the street whenever she wants to run out in the street and check the mail, or let her reach up and grab that hot burner, or would it be love for me to smack her hand, say, hey, don't touch that, it's hot. Or would it be love? No one would say I don't love my child if I put her in time out for being mean to someone. Is that? That's pretty true, I think. But oftentimes we'll look at God in, in a chastening process where he's working something out in you. What, what, what's the one point? God is at work in the mess. And so he'll send joy and sorrow to mold and shape us and expose us in our weakness. Now, now we can find that in a couple different places in Scripture. If you go to James, and you can turn there if you want. If you go to James chapter 1, um, verses 2 through 4 says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I love this word various because it's kind of like the junk drawer in your kitchen. Everybody's got one, right? You've got like a, a fuse in there and a mini light bulb, a pair of scissors, gun, bullets. I don't know what you have. In, that's, that's probably in Texas. But you, you get what I'm saying. Um, a rubber band, stale uh, Jolly Ranchers. I, I don't know what you keep in yours. Ours is full of um, uh, chicken nugget like dipping sauces. That we have no idea when we got, you know, so you shake them up and hope for the best. <laughs> Y'all don't do that? My mother-in-law doesn't do that. Look, my mother-in-law has a jar, a big, tall, long jar, and she writes the dates on them just to make sure. And she's got a whole jar for them. Isn't that great? Yeah, we don't know. We just, we, we like to live on the edge at the Peyton house. But that's what that means. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You will meet trials of varying degrees in life. Why? For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So let me be very clear. What James is saying is that God is at work in the mess. That God is producing something in his love for you that nothing, nothing that enters your life does not sift and filter through the sovereign hands of God. And so as you look at your life and you're like, man, my life is a mess. I would say to you this morning, he is working something out in you or through you. And you can even see over in Romans chapter 5, you don't have to turn there. It says in Romans chapter 5, 3, starting in verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Everybody say rejoice. Now this is next level. This is next level suffering. This is suffering where I get into it and I just rejoice that God would count me as capable of handling this. Now, the whole point of suffering isn't necessarily that you can handle it. 
okay? The point is God is after your dependence on him. And in the United States in 2019, um, can I tell you, uh, the people of God suffer a lot in the sense, in their personal walks with Jesus, because we are so, we don't need God for anything, we think. And so people will, I, somebody said uh, as I was coming in here today, it's a shame that there's so many people that go to church and they're still looking for God. Christmas is one of the most attended church seasons of the entire year. And people will come and they will go and they will not know this Jesus we're talking about. This is why it's so important for you to hand out those invite cards. This is why it's so important for you to be inviting people. But listen, um, knowing that suffering produces endurance. We read this last week. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? It just says, you're not only supposed to rejoice in suffering, but this suffering is actually God's love towards you. That he's working something else. Say, God is at work in the mess. Say it. In January, any gym nuts in the room? Gym nuts? No, I'm just kidding. Just don't raise your hand. It's fine. I'm not raising mine. <laughs> I'll be honest. Um, got a member, I'm a member at AmFam. They see me occasionally. <laughs> Not enough to know my name, okay? It's too personal. In January, <coughs> excuse me, in January, now I do go. I, maybe once a week, just depends on the season. Um, I haven't been in a couple weeks because of this holiday season, man, um, it's just been really busy. Now, I will say this. In January, what you will see is you will see people get in the gym. You know, you know who I'm talking about. The gyms are flooded with people. I'm getting back in shape. I'm going to do it now. It's my New Year's resolution. I never do that. You know why? Because it never works. I, I just like to eat too much. I, I do cardio to keep my heart pumping. Um, but I've... I'm not that guy that gets my high school picture and posts it up on the treadmill like, I'm going to be him again. Um, it's just not. Oh, you know who I'm talking about. You've seen them at the gym. Well, at the gym in January, February, you get these people that get DOMS. You ever heard of DOMS? Delayed onset muscle spasms. So they'll go work out, and then two days in, they'll, they'll come back because they're going after it. And they're like, ah! You go to the gym in January, February. If, if anything, it's at least entertaining. And they get it. Ah! And so... Um, I remember when I played rugby in college, um, we would see these guys get in the gym, and my coach would always say, I remember this, I remember this 
just vividly. He would say it all the time. Don't waste your soreness. Don't waste your soreness. Understand that sometimes these pains that you feel in life, the soreness you begin to feel, God is working something out. God is at work in the mess. He's developing something in you, and it doesn't feel good. My coach would also say it's not supposed to. Listen today, God is after your joy, but he will also send sorrow and pain and and allow these things to enter your heart and life to develop something in you. It wasn't until I was broke that I understood his providence and provision. It wasn't until my parents split up and I saw marriage just fall in shambles that I understood that God can bring wholeness. It it wasn't until I was sleeping in a truck under an overpass in Cleveland, Tennessee, that I understood God can be enough. Listen, you can talk to Robbie over here. I know I point him out a lot. But listen, it is not until you walk through pain and suffering that you understand and see who God truly is. He is developing something. He's working it out. God is at work in the best. Now, I need to give you three things this morning, and I need to move quickly. Um, There are three distorted reasons why we struggle. So... God is working this stuff out in you because of his refining love. Have you ever seen the refining process? When we say a refining fire, so they find this gold, right, on Gold Rush. This guy with three teeth drops it off. What? Watch the show. Watch the show. He drops it off. And to get, so to get the gold out, what they have to do is heat it up. And what happens is that fire gets so hot that all the impurities come to the very top. And they skim that off. That's how they get to the core of it. That's how they get to the real thing. And in our walk with Christ... This refining love of God that will heat up your life. And you'll feel the heat. You will feel these things being worked out in you. In that process, there can be some distortions as to what's really going on. So there are three things, three distorted reasons why you feel like you're struggling. Everybody say struggle bus. Number one, the devil is after me. I hear this all the time. The devil is after me. Now let me say first that we do war against the devil. There is a Satan that is after your soul. So let me be very, very clear that he's like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. So the devil is after you. That is true. 
But not everything is the devil's fault. Is that okay to say? Listen, some of y'all just make poor life decisions. And like to point at the devil or God and say, man, God must not love me. The devil's after me. Well, no, you just, you make poor decisions. Um, you haven't been seeking wisdom. Uh, so, so there's that. But then there's also the fact that God, with his sovereign hand, allows us to struggle for our gain and his glory. For our gain and his glory. Let me, when we look at life, struggle in life, we almost have to look at it like dogs on a leash. Where do I get that from? Have you ever heard of Job? Guy in the Old Testament, okay? If you just read the first chapter of Job, Job was an upright guy. Let me tell you something. You could never be Job. Job was on, in all the earth that was existent at that time, he was the guy that was most upright before the Lord. Now, you would think that being that guy and being that, you know, you're, you're the Lord's guy, that you would face nothing because God's protecting you. Well, you see this conversation go down between God and the devil, okay? That's who we presume, the evil one. And God says, uh, Satan says, hey, I want to test your servant. I want to test someone out. God says, okay, you should try Job because he's, he's the most upright man on this earth. But don't kill him. But you can't do this. He put some parameters on it. Now we read this and we think, oh, well, that's a great story. But listen. Job was doing it all right. He lost all his kids. He lost his entire business. His wife turned on him along with his friends, and he caught a disease. He was an, an, an incurable disease. And he was the most upright, godly man you've ever met. He was working something out in Job. And even there's this story in the New Testament where Jesus goes to Peter and says, Peter, um, the devil has asked if he can sift you. Have you ever seen anybody get sifted? Or what about flour? Okay. Yeah, we don't sift people normally. But we can sift flour. And so it's, you shake and you get, all the, you get all this stuff out. And gives you some pure flour. And if I was Peter or if I was Job, I would have said, hey, Lord, could you pick somebody else? Maybe pick the guy down the road that's a heathen. Pick him. I serve you. I thought we're, we're you know, together here. Can you pick someone else? But that's not the case. God puts parameters because he's after something. He is after our dependence on him. Now look, this isn't easy to preach. Listen. Because what we're saying here today is that God in his sovereignty will allow you to hurt. To work something out in you. And it's not because he dislikes you. 
because he loves you. He loves you. Number two. So a lot of people say the devil's after me. But some people might say God has abandoned me. There are cases in the Bible time after time where people feel like God is nowhere to be found. And can I be honest? Can I just be transparent this morning? It's when you're struggling that this is most felt. It feels as if, well, if God was here, this wouldn't be happening, right? Right? If God, if God saw what was going on, as if God doesn't see everything that happens, if God isn't all-powerful, as if those things would be true, that he's somehow missing this or that he has abandoned you. I can tell you that in those desert places, in those desert places, he's out to develop something in you. God is at work in your mess. Number three, we are being punished. How many of you in the room think uh, there's something in your life currently that, uh, that you should be punished for, the Lord should punish you for? Yeah. Okay. Oh, look. <laughs> no, we're not there yet. It's okay. I'm praying about it. Okay, we'll, we'll get there. Because um, now all of you have something to be punished for. I'll just, just be honest. We see it here in verse 6 of Malachi. Um, If you go to verse 6, it says, I am the Lord, I do not change. That is why you, uh, descendants of Jacob, are not already destroyed. Listen, God has not abandoned you. God has not left. And this could very well be not the devil after you. But God, after your right relationship with him. And the Bible also tells us that he chastens. You know what that means? He punishes. He chastens those he loves. And what we find here in verse 6 is that he's a God that does not change. So, So what does this mean? What does this mean? We serve a God that does not change. Because Malachi just basically said, hey, listen, there's someone coming who's going to correct all this. But when he comes, he's going to be like a refining fire. He's going to burn to the surface all the impurities. He's going to have some correction to be done. But listen, and then he caps it with this. I am a God that does, God is a God that does not change That is because he needed to remind these people that when he corrects, he still loves. He still, see, because here's the thing. Here's the thing. We just talked about at the beginning how, how God died for you at your very worst. Right? At your worst. Not a future version of you. So I just want to be very clear. God died for you, sent his son to die for you at your very worst. So when we talk about struggling and we talk about judgment and and he's coming back again, when we get to heaven, we're going to have to pay an account. 
but your judgment has already happened. Your judgment has already happened. For those who believe, for those who believe, your judgment has already happened. Now, when we get to heaven, we will pay an account. But when they go to the, when, when Christ goes to the file drawer, God pulls his file drawer out and he pulls your file out, how you lived your life and you are a blood-bought Christian, it will be dripping with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he'll see. Because as you stand before him as a Christian, all he will see is the cross. That's what he will see. Now, what are the implications of this? Well, the implications are because you're trying to earn your way to heaven. You're trying to somehow make it on your own accord. But your judgment has already happened. You're not being punished for anything. He's trying to develop something in you. He's trying to develop something in you. Discipline isn't necessarily because you've done something wrong, but because he's leading you to what is right. <coughs> Sometimes you're disciplined because you're doing wrong. Sometimes you're disciplined because he's trying to get you on the right course. Have you ever seen somebody herd sheep with that staff? Right? We see this analogy in the Bible all the time that he's the shepherd, we're the sheep. And if you watch a shepherd and he's trying to get, get them to the right place, what does he do? As he's herding sheep, he takes that, that little staff and he smacks them. You think that feels good? Where's BG? Oh, he's not here today. I'd use his cane and smack one of you just to get you to understand. It doesn't feel good. It's not necessarily the sheep's done something wrong as much as he's trying to get him to go the right direction. So Malachi is talking to a half-hearted people that have, he's delivered them, he has got them back to a place where they're in communion with him and then all of a sudden these, half, these people have become half-hearted all over again. And so Malachi says, there's a day coming where there's going to be a child born. And yes, he's after your salvation, but he's also after your refining. He's also after your refining. So how do we navigate the refining process? I, and I've just got four things very quickly, four things. How do we navigate the refining process? Number one, wait on the Lord. Any doers in the room? You're a doer? I hate waiting. I can't even read all the instructions. I just skip to the bottom. Like, what does this look like? Let's just get this done. Right? I do that when I read articles. I do, I'm a doer. Let's go. Let's get it done. But oftentimes what, and I love this quote I read, God can do more in our waiting than in all of our doing. 
Many of you are trying to work so hard to get your relationship with him right, you might just need to stop for a second. What does the Bible say? Um, Be still and know that I am God. There is a stillness. There is a waiting. So listen, as you wrestle and you struggle, it's going to happen. So I don't know what churches you've been to in the past. They may have told you it's all going to get better. But I can tell you, he does not remove all struggle from life. But I can tell you this. When you struggle, it will now produce something. It will now produce something. Instead of just more heartache, he will produce something. God can do more in our waiting than in all of our doing. Number two, walk honestly in community. So as you struggle, you need to wait on the Lord, but you need to be honest about your struggle. Most of your problems are because you can't even be honest with yourself about your current struggle. If you struggle with doubt, you need to say that. You need to walk honestly with brothers and sisters. This is why we have church. This is why we do church. You realize this. This is why we come here. It's not just for you to check off your Sunday morning box. It's so that you can walk honestly with other people who will love you. And as the refining love of God burns these things to the surface, you can say, man, my marriage is struggling. I don't know what to do with my kids. I don't don't know how to handle this sin in my heart. If you don't walk honestly in community, don't be confused as to why you're not walking closer with the Lord. Walk honestly in community. Number three, acknowledge our need. In church, I I think oftentimes weakness is looked down on. um, But in our different communities, listen, in our different circles, if you don't know how to pray, you need to just say, hey, hey, brother, I don't don't even know how to pray. I've never prayed before. How, How do you do that? I don't know how to study the Bible. I I don't know how to be kind. I need gas. We try and come here and pretend like we've achieved some type of level of Christianity when Christ's refining love has no stop this side of glory. Did you know that? Did you know this refining, this wrestling and working out of things in your spirit, there is no end until he comes. So, this is why I say that. Because you have not made it. And if you are not allowing the Holy Spirit of God to work things out in you, Christian, hear me. My heart hurts for you. That you've somehow, I don't know if you don't care. or But God is after your refining. And if you think you're too refined, well, you're lying to yourself. Number four, surrender to the process. And I'm going to say something that I don't think many of us will contest this morning, but God is smarter than you. God is smarter than you. And in his love, those things we white knuckle, this is what I'm talking about. Many of us come here 
and we have so sectioned off different parts of our lives that we have sectioned off Sunday as our Christian piece. But we go throughout the rest of our lives acting as if it doesn't matter. It doesn't translate. You've put God in this little box for Sundays and when you're around your small group. But when you're not around Christian people, you don't act Christian. This has to be a place that translates across all areas of your life. In Romans 12, chapters or verses 1 and 2, it says, Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? And then it talks about the spirit. And then it talks about the body, that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice. Listen, the Christian walk has got to translate across all arenas. Because if you section it off to one or the other, you will never feel the wholeness and completeness you're looking for in Christ. You'll never feel it. The thing you're looking for, the thing you're desiring, the thing you're, you're eager to find... It can be in Christ if you're putting it all across the board. There's a quote as I close. and um, Woody and Sandra and Robbie uh, and Patricia, if y'all want to come forward, we're going to open the altars for prayer. If you want to pray, if you need prayer today. There's a guy named Charles Spurgeon. He was a, he was a pastor, first megachurch pastor, uh, battled with depression. He battled with depression so bad, he would go weeks and months out of the pulpit because he couldn't get his mind right. His wife was constantly sick. <coughs> he pastored a church of over 10,000 on the weekends. Metro, uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle. Um, and this was, he preached to 10,000, and this was before they had amplification. So, like, if you went to Charles Spurgeon's school to be a preacher, they would measure your chest. And if you didn't have a big enough chest to project to 10,000 people, you couldn't be a preacher. Now, I wouldn't have a problem. But there are many that would. He said this. God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be confused. If I cannot trace his hand, I can always trust his heart. As we navigate life, and I used to say this in a different way. My wife would tell you that, that if you cannot hear the voice of God, trust his plan. Charles Spurgeon says the same thing, that if I can't see the hand of God and you're in a stage in life where... You can't see God moving or working or where is God in this. You can trust his heart and that he, in his love for you, is after something in you. Thanks for streaming this audio from Transformation Church RVA, located in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, check out our website at www.transformationrva.com.